Again, good morning, and, and just hope you're doing well. We are in a series right now called All You Need Is Love, and really the idea behind this series is that what we need more than anything else in life is actually God's love. And so we're continuing in this series today, and we're really taking our time with this theme this fall because this is just one of those topics that you can't just kind of hear one sermon about it and be done. You can't just do one Bible study on it and be done. It really takes time for this to really get in us. And so we're kind of marinating in God's love in this season And it's sort of like building a house. It's like that God's love is sort of just like the foundation. Without that, everything else just kind of falls apart. So this is just so foundational for the Christian life. And so that's what we're up to in this season. But in order to really grasp God's love and in order for it to really change us, we, we, we have to begin with an awareness of where we really are in this journey. And, and so I want to ask a question this morning. And the question is, when you think about God, what comes to mind for you? Uh, when you think about God, what, what comes to mind for you? And, and by asking that, I don't mean what would you write down on a theological quiz. What I mean is what sort of just kind of comes up for you instinctually? What is like your knee-jerk response, kind of unedited, uncensored? What, what comes up for you when you think about God? It's an important question. A.W. Tozer, who was a prominent Christian teacher and author and pastor in the mid-20th century, he, he said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, well, I, I, I don't know. It sounds a little bit like overstatement. But the more I think about it, the more I suspect that might actually be the literal truth of the matter. I mean, think about it. What you think about God, that deeply impacts what you think about yourself. What you think about God deeply impacts how you relate to God or not. So just an example. So what you think about God, that will impact how you approach spiritual practices or what some call spiritual disciplines. So for example, if what you really believe deep down, even if you know at some level this isn't totally accurate, if what you really believe deep down is that God is just basically an angry judge just waiting for you to slip up so he can punish you, then you approach spiritual practices uh, to sort of try to appease him or try to get him to like you, right? And, and, and so, if you, for example, you might think, you know, if I just read more scripture, maybe God will like me. Or you might think, you know, if I just prayed more or sinless, maybe, maybe then God would truly love me. And you see, what we think about God deeply impacts our entire life. But, th- but the thing to catch is that what matters most is not what we say we think about God, but what we really believe in here. Uh, Tozer, he, he puts it like this. Uh, he says that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God, in other words, who he is, is of immense importance to us. So he's saying that it's just so important that our view of God matches up with with who he really is. He goes on, compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Again, his point is, is that what we say about God is less important than what we actually truly believe. And he goes on, he says, our real idea of God may be buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search 
before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. And so what he's getting at here is that sometimes we're not even totally aware of what we really believe about God. But he's saying it is so important that we actually get clear on that. And sometimes that's a process. Sometimes that is a journey. But that is so important. And his point, though, is really that what we think about God, that is really of the utmost importance. And so, and so that's one of the reasons why we're really just diving in in this series to really help us get clear on who God is. Now, now what if I told you that God loves you? that he doesn't just tolerate you, that he actually loves you. Would, you. would you be able to believe that? Would you believe that? Many people don't. A few years ago, I read a book by a guy named David Benner, who is a Christian psychologist and, and spiritual director. And, and he's someone who's met with lots and lots of people over the years. And when he does, he usually asks them a question. And the question is, imagine God thinking about you. And he asks, what do you assume God feels when you come to mind? It's a wonderful question, and he's asked that of lots of different people, and here's what he's found. He's found, he says, quote, a surprising number of people say that the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. Others assume that God feels anger, but in both cases, he says, these people are convinced that it is their sin that first catches God's attention, end quote. So in other words, for for so many people, Christians, non-Christians, when they think about God, they think of a God whose primary attitude toward them is anger or disappointment or both. But notice they don't think his primary attitude toward them is love. And friends, that is so, so sad because think about this. There is no scripture that says God is anger. There is no scripture that says God is disappointment. But there is a scripture that says God is love. That is who he is in his very essence, in the core of his being. God is love. Yet somehow for so many of us, it's like somehow we've missed that. And so it is so important that we really get clear on who God is. Everything hinges on this. And so my my main point today, it's actually fairly simple. My main point today is that God actually loves you. (laughs) He actually loves you. He really does. And that he loves you with a love that is so contrary to our human understandings of love that is actually a revolution in the human soul. It is a revolutionary love. And so that's what we're talking about today. Now, Now to describe God's love as revolutionary is to imply that it's overthrowing something else. And so I wanted to talk just for a moment about what is it that God's revolutionary love is overthrowing. And, and, and what it is, is, is really a false narrative that is deeply embedded in the soul of so many human beings. And it's basically this idea. It's that God only loves us when we're good. Or another way to frame this narrative is to say that God's love is conditional. It's conditional upon how I perform. It's a conditional upon my behavior. And so if we're performing well, you know, we feel like, okay, God loves us because of our performance. But if we're not performing well, you know, maybe we're sinning or we're neglecting, you know, our responsibilities before God. We can, we can feel like we've lost God's love and, and his acceptance, at least until we can kind of clean ourselves up again and make ourselves presentable to him. And of course, that is a, a brutal way to live. 
Yet so many people live on that roller coaster. And it is, it is not a good one. As I've shared before, sometimes I struggle with accepting God's love for me. It's, it's been a journey. I've grown a lot through the years. I shared last week that I had a kind of an insight into myself recently. And it's that when I'm performing well, I realize that it's, it's easy for me to believe that God loves me. But when I'm not, let's say maybe I'm not praying as much as I should, or maybe, you know, I got angry with my wife, or, uh, you know, I kind of watched too much TV again, you know. And, you know, in those moments, it, it, I, I realized it's harder for me to believe that God really loves me. Now, I, I've had enough history with God. I've, I've had enough experience with his love that I still believe he loves me, even in those moments. But I realize that I believe it less strongly. And that in those times that, that doubt can, can actually kind of creep in. Uh, and, um, but what that reveals is, is that this toxic narrative, or at least fragments of it, are still somehow lodged somewhere in my soul. And there are parts of me that can feel that God's love is conditional, or that it has to be earned, or maintained, or that it's based, at least in part, on my performance. Which, friends, is so contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is so contrary to the word of God. And so I just want to hit this today. I just want to really drive this home, that God's love is unconditional. But again, so many of us struggle with this. Because think about it, what is the nature of human life? It's performance-based acceptance, Right? You know, as we're parents, we, we might try to avoid this, but it can be hard to avoid sending the signal, you know, you do good, you know, well done, you know, uh, you know, your kids do something wrong. Oh my gosh, you colored crayons on the wall, you know, you know, and kind of like, no, 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 you know. And sometimes it can be hard to communicate that what we're, what we're actually affirming or disaffirming is behavior, not their identity. And sometimes we, we, we walk away from our, our, our childhood, our, our family of origin with these signals, with these messages, but then you walk out into the world and guess what? That's just ramped up. Because think about it. Uh, you know, if you do well in school, you're praised. Uh, if you score the winning basket, you're admired. If, you know, if you have particularly good looks, you're admired. I don't know about that personally, but I, I've heard that's the case. I've heard that's the case. So as, as we go through life, we, we, we pick up this message that our acceptance, that our value, that our worth is based on our performance. And that is so deeply woven in, into just human life that it's not at all surprising that therefore we can then just kind of project this onto God, right? And for so many of us, I think that that's what's happened. So, but here's the good news. That, that false narrative that, that God's love is based on our performance, that is not Jesus' narrative. That is not the narrative of Scripture. And really, the revolutionary love of God is simply this, that God's love is an unconditional love. It is an unconditional love. That is the essence of God's revolutionary love. And so let's look at this together in God's word. Let's, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, or you can follow along on the screens. And, uh, and even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you're probably, you probably, if you know one verse, you probably know this one. This is like, like the most famous scripture of all. Maybe you've seen a, I don't know, a Super Bowl game and someone's holding up a John 3.16 sign. Um, and so this is just one of those scriptures. And the reason is because this is really just a summary of the gospel. This is one of the most concise summaries of the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. But let's read this together. It says, for God so loved the world. Now notice, it does not say God was so mad at the world. And it doesn't even say God 
kind of love the world? And you're like, meh. It's not what it says. It says, God so loved the world. It's like from the depths of his being, he was filled with love for this world. Wow, how, how, did, we, how did we miss that? Like, like, how did we miss that message? It's amazing. It's amazing. And how, and how is that expressed? Well, it says that he gave his one and only son, referring to Jesus, both his incarnation and his crucifixion on, on our behalf. And if that doesn't just really melt your heart, I, I don't know what will. One commentator says this. You can put the quote up. He says, if the depth of love is measured by the value of its gift, then God's love could not be greater. For his love gift is his most precious possession, his only eternally beloved son. So God, he's just filled with love. Again, God is love. That's the essence of his being. And it's just sort of overflowing. And he expresses that love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Now here is the crucial question. Who is this love expressed to? Now I think some might expect this to say, you know, for God so loved the good people, for God so loved the holy people, for God so loved the, the religious people, for God so loved the people who had it all together, but that is not what it says. It says what? For God so loved the world. And that means two things. First, that means scope. Notice Jesus does not say, you know, God loved a, a few. Doesn't say God loved some. Doesn't say God loved many. It says God loved the world, which is all-inclusive in scope. So that tells us that, that God's love is not just for some, that it is for all. But since it's for all, that also tells us what? That God loves sinners, the language of the Bible. In other words, people like you and me. <laughs> That's good news. He doesn't love their sin, but he loves sinners. He loves people who make mistakes. He loves people who don't have it all together. He loves people who don't know the Bible from backwards to forwards. He loves the world. He loves you. He loves me. That is for whom Christ died. Everyone in this room. Everyone on the streets of Fullerton. He loved God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, so Jesus came and, and he died for, for people like us, for sinners. And, and notice, it, it's not, it doesn't say like, you know, after, you know, you cleaned yourself up then, you know, you know no, no, no. John, let me, let me read Romans 5, uh, verse 8. Love this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still pushing God away, while we were still doing our own thing, Christ died for us. It is amazing. And so what this tells us very clearly is that one, that, that God loves us, that God loves all of us, for God so loved the world. But secondly, that God's love is not based on performance because Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Now, just to drive this point home, I want to turn briefly to Ephesians chapter two, another famous passage of scripture, looking at verses eight and nine, and it says this, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, 
It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So, so John 3.16 is describing how in, in his great love, God sent his one and, and only son, Jesus, to become incarnate and, and, and die in our place that we might be saved and receive eternal life. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul is, is saying that that expression of love, that God's saving work in Christ, that it is, quote, by grace. It is by grace you have been saved. And what grace means, it means unmerited favor, unearned favor, God's free and undeserved mercy toward us. We don't deserve it, but he lavishes his grace upon us. And Paul goes on to describe this salvation, this love as a gift. He says, it is not by works. In other words, it's not something you earn. It is something you receive. Now, later in the service, I think we're going to sing a song called, This is Amazing Grace. And that is so fitting because this this truly is amazing grace. I mean, this isn't just pretty good grace. That'd be a pretty lame song, right? This is pretty good grace. No. <laughs> this is amazing grace. I mean, I mean, think about it. This is life-changing, revolutionary stuff. And it is not only offered to all, it is not only offered to sinners and those who fall short, it is offered as a gift, as a free gift of grace, unconditional love. This truly is amazing grace. Amen? It's amazing. So contrary to that, that false narrative that, that so many of us walk around with as sort of the soundtrack to our life, uh, what we see here is that God's love is unconditional. It's not based on our performance. It is unearned. It is grace. It is amazing grace. But I also know that, that, that again, th- th- this false narrative, it, it can be so deeply rooted in us. And so I want to try kind of through the series, I'm kind of, uh, kind of attacking this from different angles. And so I'm going to try something different that, that might be kind of unexpected, but something that God used in my life recently. I want to share with you a poem uh, written by a guy named George Herbert, who was, uh, uh, he was a pastor in England back in the 17th century. He's actually part of our tradition. So he's like a great, 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 great grandpappy, you know, and uh, goes way back. And uh, he wrote a poem. And interestingly, so when I was an undergrad, um, I studied, uh, among many others, I, I studied uh, the work of a philosopher named Simone Weil. Her last name looks like Whale or Weil, but it's pronounced Weil. She was raised in a Jewish home, and amazingly, she came to faith in Jesus Christ by reading this poem. So you just might want to buckle up, just just heads up. <laughs> no, but to speak seriously, though, uh, I was at a retreat uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and a guy named James Brian Smith. Uh, was leading the retreat. He's one of the great kind of spiritual formation writers uh, of our day, and, and and he was kind of the, the kind of the main speaker. And, and he shared this poem, and he kind of just walked through. And I'm kind of really draw really from his work on this, but it re- God really used it in my life. So I'm, I'm hoping and praying that God will just maybe use this in, in your life uh, today. So I want to kind of just maybe read this poem, and then maybe I'll kind of go and just kind of walk through it line by line. And this is just a poem that's just really bathed in scripture, just rooted in scripture. And it's called Love 3, like Roman numeral, like I, 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 Love 3, because this is the third poem on love that that George Herbert wrote. And I'll just, again, read this once through, and then we'll kind of unpack this. It says this, and this is kind of old school language, just kind of roll with it, okay? (laughs) Love bade me welcome 
yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. It's a powerful poem, but I know this is kind of an old school language, so I, I want to just walk through this. And, um, and as we do, I just pray that the Lord will, will speak to you. So Herbert, he was a pastor, and he was, his imagination was just filled with, with Scripture. And uh, the Bible tells us, again, as we've seen, that God is love. And so when it says, love bade me welcome, you could insert the word God for the word love. Okay, so love bade me welcome. God bade me welcome. God invited me in. God invites us in. Yet my soul drew back. What, what is the soul's response? So often in the nearness of God, our soul draws back. It's kind of like the, the, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve kind of hiding, kind of withdrawing. But then Herbert tells us why we draw back. He says, guilty of dust and sin. Now we all know in, in our heart of hearts that we fail, that we fall short uh, countless times. And, and, and so we draw back because we are guilty. But quick-eyed love. Now this is an, an amazing expression to describe how God sees us, how God sees you and, and, and me. With eyes, he sees us fully and completely, but he sees us with eyes of compassion and love. Observing me grow slack from my first entrance in. Now, in Herbert's day, growing slack was an expression which meant hesitation. And, and so, so do you see the movement in, in this poem? God invites us in. We draw back. God knows why we draw back. We're, we feel guilty. So what does God do? Drew nearer to me. Isn't that beautiful? We withdraw in shame. We withdraw in fear. But God steps closer. Drew nearer to me. Sweetly questioning. No, not interrogating. <laughs> Sweetly questioning and here begins sort of kind of like this gentle kind of back and forth uh, between love and between the soul in this poem. God draws near and asks us a question. Now with our, our performance kind of based acceptance narrative kind of deeply uh, kind of in our souls, you know, we're, we're probably expecting God to, to ask us, you know, why have you sinned so much? But that's not what he asks. Instead, he questions if I lacked anything. God's first question is not, you know, what do you have to say for yourself, you rotten sinner? But rather, what do you lack? Do you need, do you need something? Such kindness, 
I'll just share a, a picture of this. I was a missionary in New Jersey one summer, and yeah, New Jersey represent. <laughs> and uh, one, one night we were out on this boardwalk in this kind of shady place, in all honesty. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine got talking to a young guy who was obviously in a rough spot, and it was cold outside. And, and this guy was like in shorts and a t-shirt, and, and he looked really cold and was so amazing. And he, we don't know, his, I didn't know his story, you know, did, was he from a really rough background and kind of a uh, victim of an, kind of an unjust environment, or did he kind of make bad choices and kind of end up there here through his own fault? We didn't know, but a friend of mine, just w- without even caring about those kind of questions, he went into the store and bought a sweater and came out and brought it and gave it to this guy. And the guy was just stunned, like, he said, he said, no one's ever done anything like this for me. See, that, that, that's a question. I mean, that's, excuse me, that's, that's sort of a picture of kind of this, this love, this kind of this radical love we, we, we see in, in this poem. We think God's maybe going to berate us, but he asks, if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. You see, we, we lack a sense of being worthy, especially in when we get into God's presence. But love does something unimaginable. Love said, you shall be he. Love responds to our doubts about our, our worthiness by saying, you, you are worthy. You are worthy because I say you are. You are worthy because of my love for you. I came across a quote by St. Augustine, one of the great leaders of the church in the early years. He once said this, by loving us, God makes us lovable. Isn't that beautiful? By loving us, God makes us lovable. Now, as we've seen, our worthiness will never be merited. It'll never be achieved. It'll never be earned. It is a gift, a free gift given to us in Jesus Christ. But, a, but so many of us have, have a hard time actually receiving grace, receiving the gift that God wants to give us. After all, I mean, our world runs on an economy of merit. You get what you earn. That, that's how this world operates. So we respond, I, the unkind, the ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. In other words, God, do you really know how bad I am? Do you really know how bad I've blown it? I, I can't even look at you. But love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Now, this is a, a, a kind of a, a shocking image. And some people have trouble picturing God smiling about anything especially them, on this, Dallas Willard had a great line, which I love. He said, God is the most joyous being in the universe. God is the most joyous being in the universe. But let me just personalize this. Can you imagine God smiling at you? Could you picture that? Knowing you completely and loving you right where you are. There's this amazing response. Who, you know, who, who made your eyes? Wasn't it me? Yes, we reply, truth, Lord, but I have marred them. This all says, yeah, you, you made my eyes, but I haven't used them rightly. I, I've looked at things I shouldn't have looked at. I, I've messed them up. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. The soul is saying, God, do you know who you're talking to? I, I, I'm a mess. Yeah, you made my eyes, but I, I've ruined them. So please let my shame go where it doth deserve. And here what's fascinating is at this point in the poem, the soul is crying out not for mercy, but for justice. 
God, give me not what I want, but what I deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? This is, of course, a reference to reconciliation to what Jesus did on the cross. And it's acknowledging, yeah, you, you have sin in your life. You've marred your eyes, but, but even that I bore the blame for that. God is saying, Jesus bore the blame. My son took your shame and you bear it no more. Now, at this point, I think it's important just for where our culture is to, 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 to highlight that sometimes people think about God's love as just kind of this cosmic, warm and fuzzy feeling that really is kind of for everyone and everything. There's no regard for, for justice and you know, maybe sin's no big deal. That, that, is, that is not the love of God that we see in the Bible. God is love, God is holy. God is love, God is just. These, these things always go together in the nature of God. So, so God is saying, yeah, your, your sin is real. And someone had to bear the cost. But my son, Jesus Christ, bore the cost in your place. He took the blame. He nailed your sins to the cross. He is the judge judged in our place. Now the soul soul is sort of down to its last straw in this poem and says, my dear, then, then I will serve. And isn't this what we do? Okay, God, okay, I will serve you. You made my eyes, you, you bore my, my shame. Okay, I'll, I'll pay you back. I owe you everything. Uh, I'll serve you any way you ask. I'll, I'll go to the mission field. I will, I'll do whatever. Now in part, that's the right response. But in part, there's something skewed here. So we read this. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. In response, God says, sit down, rest your feast with me, be with me, enjoy my presence, and let me serve you first. And actually, I don't need you to serve me. I made you because I love you, and what I want more than anything else is to be with you, to enjoy relationship with you, first and foremost. And the poem ends with this. So I did. Sit and eat. And really that's what God wants most of all, more than anything else, is for us to be in a relationship with him, for us to enjoy his presence and beauty, his goodness, his mercy and love, and for all the serving which we are called to, to flow out of that place. Rather to serve, to try to get God to like us, to try to get God to love us. Do you see the difference there? That is, they're two radically opposed ways of approaching your relationship with God, of, of approaching life. God loves you right where you are. That is the basis for everything else. Let me invite the band to come back up. So I don't know about you, uh, but at the very least for Simone Vey and I, I don't know, that poem kind of rocked my world a bit. And, uh, but I, I pray that something in that maybe maybe spoke to you and, 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 and somehow God, God spoke to you uh, today. But what, what really is, is the point? Again, it's simply this, that God actually loves you. <laughs> that God is love. For God so loved the world. That God so loved you. And sometimes I think we can feel like we're maybe, we're, maybe like we kind of, you know, he saw other people, but kind of somehow he didn't see us in that crowd. So if he would have seen us in that crowd, maybe he might have had a different, no, no, no. God sees you. He knows you. He loves you right where you are. And this love isn't based on your performance. 
You can't earn it. You can't unearn it. It is a revolutionary love. It is for you if you will accept it. Let's pray together. Let's close our eyes and just turn our thoughts to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your great love. We, we thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you for your great love, God. If there's anyone here today who's never received this love, who's never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can do that today. So I just want to give you just an, an opportunity to respond. Nothing embarrassing. I just maybe want to give you a simple prayer. You can just quietly or silently pray. And it's just kind of like receiving a Christmas present. Just kind of like opening your arms up, opening your soul up, open your heart up to God. And you can just say, Jesus, I want to receive your gift of new life. Jesus, I want to receive your gift of new life. Would you come into my life and forgive my sins? I want to know your love and follow you with my life. Thank you for forgiving me. For all of us here, Father, I pray that you would just wash over us with your love. I pray that you'd go to those deep places in our heart, God, where we have these false narratives, these broken images of you, God, and that you would that you you would replace them, God, with a true picture of who you are. God, would you root us ever more deeply in your love? We're going to take a moment just to be in God's presence together, just to process with God what maybe he's been saying to you. So I might just want to ask God for a moment, what, or just think, God, what, what, what have you been saying to me today? Let's take a moment just in silent prayer, then we'll continue in worship.